I was saying to my friends this weekend, I was turning 50. It's like having Rice Krispies for breakfast every morning. When you get out of bed, it's snap, crackle, and pop. Hey everyone, welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we're going to dive deep on a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. And welcome to Touchpoint. Special thanks again to Michael Vinsky for the uh the ever popular or produced makes us sound more official, I guess, uh, that we have someone else doing our intro. But special thanks to him for doing the intro. Learn a little bit more about what he does over at michaelvinsky.com. That's V E N S K E.com. So, talented guys, lots of talents. I'm Reed Smith, and of course, on the other side of the microphone, for the first time in 2018 is Chris Boyer. You can find Chris online at ChristopherBoyer.com, at Chris Boyer on all the social channels. Here we are, 2018. Hey, Reed. Happy New Year to you. Looking forward to this upcoming year. That's Reed Smith over there on the other side of the microphone. Find him online at SocialHealthInstitute.com and follow him on all the popular social media sites. Happy to be here. Happy to be uh, recording our first podcast of the year. Yes, absolutely. And as we record this, uh, we are just hours out, I guess, of the release of this episode, which is also your 50th birthday. Yes, January 3rd, my 50th birthday. So if you're listening, be sure to uh, ping him on Twitter or something like that, LinkedIn, whatever it is, tell him happy birthday. So Yeah, I, LinkedIn's reminding people about birthdays as is Facebook and everything Yeah, else, why so. is that? Why do, we can't, why, why do we need LinkedIn to tell some people's birthdays are? <laughs> I do not know, but okay. whatever. I mean, LinkedIn has got to stay in its lane. Hey, yeah. Reed, speaking about 50, we mentioned this last year, and I want to reiterate it today, which is we're going to have a very special 50th episode coming up in just a couple of episodes. And much like our 20th episodes, we were thinking it would be really fun to ask our audience for tips, send it our ways, and kind of fill up mm-hmm. our episode around some of the best digital marketing, digital patient experience tips there are. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, are we going to have 50 tips? I don't know. That seems like a lot, but we'll see what comes in and figure out exactly what format, you know, we want to roll those out in. But episode 20 was was fun. And if you listen to the end of year recap, you heard uh, about episode 20 quite often. If you did not, it's a fun episode to listen to. It's the one right before this one, episode 47. Go check it out. So send us, send us your tips. Could be focused on 2018 or something new. Could be something you learned last year. It doesn't really matter. Just send it our mm-hmm. way, and we'll uh, you may put it in the episode. You never know. And you could submit that via audio. You could just pick up your phone and do a little voice memo, and either text it or message us with that with that information. You could send it, type it up, send it to us in a direct message, or even on LinkedIn or on our Touchpoint Twitter account. Doesn't really matter. Just yep. We look forward to you guys giving us some great information and making this episode really awesome. If you do record that tip and want to email that, you can email it to hello at touchpointpodcast.com. So it's hello at touchpointpodcast.com and we'll get that. Maybe we should set up a chat bot to deal with those episodes coming in. Hey, (laughs) speaking of chat bots, I want to talk a little bit about one of our sponsors, Loyal. Did you hear about the latest solution from Loyal? It's called Guide, where they use powerful AI-driven algorithms 
Guide is really a chatbot that engages patients in sort of that dynamic conversation while helping them along every step of their online journey, from choosing a doctor, finding the closest location, or even applying for a job. Yeah, absolutely. And you can use it with or without a call center or someone live on the other end. You know, through Loyal's intelligent healthcare-specific platform, uh, it can be customized to fit your specific needs and brand. Guy looks, feels, sounds like you because it is designed just for you. That's really cool. So if you want to learn a little bit more about how a guide can go to work for you, go out to loyalhealth.com slash guide and schedule a demo, learn a little bit more. But whatever you do, just go out to loyalhealth.com slash guide. So we have talked about cybersecurity in a recent episode. Do you remember that? Way back in episode 39? Yes, that's getting close to, uh, well, it was about two months ago, I guess. If we're 48, that's 39, etc. But yeah, we, we uh, had a really neat episode on cybersecurity and had an expert in that you uh, were nice enough to interview Mark Burnett, not the producer of Survivor or creator <laughs> of Survivor, for those that listen to that episode. I had Mark on and he talked a lot about uh, cybersecurity as a whole. And today we'll be talking more specifically about ransomware, which is a type uh, or kind of falls in that that underneath that umbrella of, of what you're concerned with related to cybersecurity. So we've got another uh, former hospital CIO, John Mason, coming on today to talk a little bit more about that as well. It's a great interview that's coming up later in the episode. Today, we're going to be focusing in on, on one particular thing, which is ransomware and even more, you know, in a much higher level, how data is being used in, in these ransomware situ- situations. So, Reed, cybersecurity impacts a lot of different industries today. And it's really any industry that really traffics in data can be potentially impacted by cybersecurity. What was the most recent one? Equifax. Yes, thank you. The Equifax breach. We hear all the time about different social media platforms that have been hacked. Uber, for example, has been hacked, exposed, I guess, a bunch of user data. Actually, it's happened to Uber a couple of times. The first time, I think it was actually driver data. Mm -hmm. Second time, the one they didn't actually report was the one that, I guess, exposed a bunch of uh, users. But it's also banks and retail organizations. We always hear Mm -hmm. about credit cards being compromised. Yeah, Target, other places through the, through the last few years, yep. And even service-oriented organizations, and, and you know, both good and bad. I, I don't want to take this to an explicit rating, but a couple years ago about how AshleyMadison.com was compromised, yes. and they were going to expose people's data. Data is a big thing in this digital world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what have we done as hospitals as of the last few years? Well, we've gone from paper to digital, the cloud in some instances, I guess, through the adoption of patient portals and all that kind of good stuff that obviously all have a huge upside. I mean, we're not going to see that decrease, I guess, but that opens hospitals up to be a target. We're going to kind of dive into that a little bit, but before we get into it, let's just talk about data itself and kind of the risks around data. There was a really good white paper that John sent to us to take a look at, which was created by Intel Security. It was a white paper called The Hidden Data Economy the marketplace for stolen digital information. And I think there were some cool things out of there that maybe we want to talk about. The first thing, Reed, is a quote. They actually started off the the whole white paper with this quote. It's, it's pretty insightful. They say, quote, data is the oil of the digital economy. 
The commercial market for personal data is booming with large databases of subscriber information, driving up the enormous valuations of companies that own it, even though many have yet to turn a profit. As mm-hmm. the commercial value of personal data grows, cyber criminals have long since built an economy stealing stolen data to anybody with a computer browser and the means to pay. Uh, anybody with the means to pay. So again, I, you know, I think as we continue to see more data end up, I guess, together, so more data points creates more valuable data, then that becomes a, a bigger and bigger target. It sure does. Reed, has your credit card been compromised? Have you ever had to replace your credit card? Or Yeah, a couple of years ago, uh, you know, get a call from American Express, which I have nothing but great things to say about over the years. And they're like, hey, so are you in California right now? It's like, no. Did you just eat at the uh, California Pizza Kitchen in, you know, whatever town in California? It's like, no. We see that a lot. You know, and you're starting to see it more and more at the gas pump, too. Mm -hmm. You know, people stealing credit card numbers and stuff like that, uh, being able to put a little piece of technology in there that captures your credit card number when you swipe it at the gas pump. Skimmers, I think they're called, right? Yeah. Where they where yeah. they skim your credit card. That just recently happened to me with my business credit card, uh, and it happened at a gas. Really? Pump. Yeah, and it was like a couple months ago. And I remember I reached out to the bank, and I said my credit card has been compromised. I found out before them. Usually they're pretty good about notifying you. They have algorithms that kind of say. This seems out of whack. Yeah. Yeah. But I reached them because I found out about it because I check my business account on a regular basis, and what happened was. It was pretty interesting. They said, okay, well, we're going to shut off all charges from this point on. We're going to reissue you a new credit card. You just got to fill out this piece of paperwork, and we'll just get it taken care of. And it seemed very, like, normal, common to them. Whereas to me, I'm freaking out. And to them, they're just like, oh, yeah, oh, well, you know, another data breach. We have a whole department for that. Yeah. Exactly. We have the paperwork. We'll send you this. Da, 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 da. And there's actually a term called data breach fatigue, which is about this very thing, which is another way to say apathy. Well, I mean, think about it in the terms of healthcare, right? Mm-hmm. So if you get the flu, I mean, it sucks, right? It's not great, but, you know, I mean, it's the flu. It's going to be over in a few days. Yeah, you know, you're not going to feel well. There's a way to yeah. treat it. Every doctor handles this. You get some super, you know, rare form of cancer, and you know, it, you're freaking out much. You know, the freakout scale is is higher, I guess. So this is one of those things. As it's become more common, it's starting to become like the flu, right? Yeah. It's like uh, there's probably a fifty fifty chance I'm going to get hacked this year. Right. You know, or right. it's fifty fifty chance I'm gonna get the flu this season, you know, right. kind of a deal. <laughs> you try to get people to do that kind of stuff or have some level of protection or not use the same password for every platform, but what do they do? They use the same platform for and we see that all the time even with companies. It's like, man, have their Twitter account get hacked and it's like, well, the password was password. This there's a cool article that I'm we'll link to in our show notes called I Feel Nothing, the Home Depot Hack and Data Breach Fatigue. And the author even said, quote, because banks are responsible for making us whole if our credit cards are misused and we are simply issued new cards an annoying hassle but not life-altering i join you in reacting to news of these hacks with a shrug mm-hmm. how, how do you feel about that reed are you gonna just anytime your credit card gets stolen you're just gonna be like oh well gotta replace the credit card if american express calls me like they did and they're like we saw these two charges it looks weird we'll send you a new card and you know refund you the money mm-hmm 
I mean, it's not great, but I don't have much time to really react because they've taken care of the whole thing at that right. point. And two, I think you, you run the risk of being complacent in the sense that it's not going to happen to me. You know, just like when you're a teenager, you're invincible to some degree. So you're jumping off a house into a swimming pool. Until you break your legs. I'm probably not going to do that at 40. <laughs> yeah. Um, or 50. Mm-hmm. Uh, or 50. <laughs> but it's, it's the same deal, right? The root of this is financial data. And what's interesting, in this article, in this white paper that we talked about, they actually link to a chart that shows what the cost or the, the worth of financial data is on the secondary market. A payment credit card number with uh, information, like a random number that doesn't really have, it just has a credit card information with that CVV number on the back of it. Right. The cost for that is five to eight dollars per record on the black market. You got to get a whole bunch of them to make that pay off for one. Well, sure. But then if you add the bank ID number, maybe you have the bank information related to it, then it's 15 bucks. If you include a date of birth, it's also $15. And then if you add so much additional information, there's different levels of kind of information. The price goes up from there. It's $30. Depends on how much information is out there. So it's amazing. I know. That's great. That's in the United States. It's actually uh, is worth a lot more if you go to, to Australia. Uh, is that taking into account the exchange rate? Uh, <laughs> I mean, well, since I, don't, it, I, don't, I don't know what the Canadian dollars trade net right now, but... Well, since they're using Bitcoin, probably, mostly to, to pay for this sort of thing, maybe it's yeah. all the same. I don't know. Exactly. How much is this in Bitcoin? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's other types of you know data breaches that occur, too. Financial mm-hmm. data being the most prevalent. The other one is login credentials, and we talked about that in episode 39 with Mark. Phishing, you know, where they try to get your login information to access your backend systems. And it's usually done out of fear. You know, you get an email, right? Mm-hmm. There's been an issue. Click here to log in to verify this thing, you know, or whatever. So you're like, oh, you know, what what happened? You know, uh, and so you're clicking on stuff without realizing because they, they get pretty good at you know making those emails look official, mm-hmm. you know, and whether that be uh, you know some sort of cloud service login, could be banking login that kind of ties into the financial data piece, right? Um, it could be, you know, credit card. It could be social media. That reminds me of a little story that happened actually over the last couple of weeks. I heard about a, a doctor that had their Twitter account compromised. They said that their login information was hacked. And they reached out to Twitter and submitted like a formal request, etc. But they were concerned about it. So they searched online. They found a phone number and they called up this phone number to say that purportedly was Twitter. And it said, well, your account was hacked, but it was from somewhere in China. So we're going to need your credit card information to pay for a special service in order for us to unblock that and get access to figure out who logged into it. That, to me, sounded suspicious right away, right? Right. You know, why would Twitter want to do that? But still, unfortunately, I haven't you know, figured out exactly if that was compromised or data compromised, but it sounded really suspicious. And rightfully so, the doctor did not give out a credit card information and just waited for Twitter to reset the password and they were able to clear up their account. But login information leads to this financial breach as we talked about before. Hey, we want to take a moment to thank one of our sponsors and that's our good friends at Binary Fountain. You know, as a healthcare marketer, it's probably pretty obvious these days how much time you're spending uh, on reviews, ratings relative to hospitals, physicians, all that kind of good stuff. You know, too many of those are going unanswered and they're certainly not being analyzed. 
This could be costing us new and current customers. It could be impacting our patient experience scores and potentially impacting our revenue. Luckily, our good friends at Binary Fountain have an online reputation management platform called Binary Health Analytics. If you'd like to learn more or even schedule a demo, visit them online at binaryfountain.com. That's binaryfountain.com. You know, this also includes access to online services. And so it could be, you know, gained, just like the financial stuff could be gained through phishing. This could be things like cloud services or things like Netflix or Hulu, online services or online service providers. A lot of times we have our credit card information tied to those services, and that's yep. probably why people get into that. But then again, as we mentioned before, Ashley Madison, they turned around and started to use that to, to try to blackmail the users, you know, yeah. try to get more worth out of the login, so to speak. Uh, and then ultimately identities. You know, so people want to set up new accounts, open new services. Yeah. But basically, you know, if they can steal your identity, they can go set up a credit card and buy a bunch of stuff, you know, hopefully before you realize it. Which which is the Equifax situation, right? There's a lot of different ways that you can hack data. But that really brings us to the main topic of today, which is ransomware. So how do we define ransomware? Go into Wikipedia. We should have given Wikipedia an award. As the best online reference. (laughs) Podcast expert or something of the year. All right. So according to Wikipedia, ransomware is a type of malicious software from, I don't know what that word is. Cryptovirology. Cryptovirology? That threatens to publish the victim's data or perpetually block access. And that's usually what we see to the data unless a ransom is paid. Some ransomwares, you know, may lock the system in a way that you could, you know, potentially get more access to. And they're just, you know, seeing if they can get a little bit of money out out of you. But it's going to be a pain for you to do it on your own kind of a thing. So it'd be cheaper to pay and unlock it, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, The more advanced ones, obviously, use an extortion technique which encrypts the files, making them where you cannot access them in any way and demands a ransom payment to decrypt them. But in short... Someone steals something of yours, in this case, data, and then wants a ransom for it. Now, ransomware has been around for a while in healthcare. Becker's Hospital Review said the first known ransomware attack occurred in 1989. How would that even work? You know, back then we weren't even on electronic medical records, but I would still say that, you know, back in 1989, uh, hospitals were, although we think of them as as outdated, they were some of the first people to introduce computers to help uh, track information. I think somebody just changed the locks on HIM. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Like on the department. (laughs) (laughs) Still, I mean, here we are 28 years later, you know, 29 years later. And the healthcare industry is still the top target for ransomware attacks. So, I mean, why is that? I mean, I would assume the obvious one is that from stealing someone's identity, I mean, what else would you need? Right. Like there, you got it well, there it is. It's all in one place. You got date of birth. You probably have a social security number. You have all their financial information. That's like the mother load of data for you know cyber yeah. criminals. Well, and from a ransomware standpoint, it's probably not so much about using the data, although I guess you could sell it off. It's really about the need of the hospital that to have this stuff, therefore their willingness to pay the ransom. The value of that data to them. I think that's the bigger thing here and that and that organizations would respond to that. Early on, ransomware, way back in nineteen eighty nine, they probably wrote their own codes. I mean, these were like 
hackers, like in the traditional sense, when we think about hackers, a person living in the basement in New Jersey somewhere, right? It's like just someone who wrote their code that's out there just playing around, maybe sees a little bit Mm -hmm. of value to that. But now, today's attackers are becoming really, really sophisticated. There is off-the-shelf libraries that are significantly harder to crack. They're using all this different type of technology to try to get into it. Spear phishing campaigns we talked about, phishing email blasts, a lot of different ways to try to get information to get into the systems. They're much more organized. It's not just one person in a, in a basement doing it anymore. A lot of times it's a conglomeration of people, potentially from other mm-hmm. countries that are trying to attack. And more and more on the black market, there are these sophisticated toolkits that can be downloaded and deployed by attackers with less technical skills. So they're paying for these tools to then turn around and deploy. That sounds to me like this market is rapidly becoming much more advanced and and moving at a much faster pace than a lot of our organizations, hospitals and health systems, are, are can respond to that. Well, I think the problem is is it is becoming more sophisticated yet easier to get into. Yeah, the, you know, the bar is pretty low. You know, if someone wanted, you know, if someone has a computer and wants to figure this out and has a little savvy to them, understands, you know, kind of how computers and data and stuff, you know, the cloud, some of that stuff kind of works in, in, in basic. I, I would assume they could figure this thing out. They absolutely could. And because of that, the types of extortion that they're trying to do through ransomware is changing significantly. So early on, you would hear about people that would be, um, you know, holding hospitals with ransomware, holding them hostage, and trying to extort millions of dollars from the victims. Right. In, in 2015, uh, there was a company called CryptoWall. I guess it's a cyber criminal company. They extorted, according to the FBI, over $18 million from victims. I think some of this, too, and we get into this some with John here in a little bit, but I almost think about it like a little bit like lawsuits. Mm-hmm. You know, there still are people trying to sue people for tons and tons of money, but the goal probably is a you know it's like a turn and burn kind of a thing, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, look, let's hold them hostage or let's sue them for just enough money that it's not really worth them going to court. Mm-hmm. Like it's cheaper for them just to pay it, and so in this case, it's like let's extort or let's hold them hostage. Uh, this data hostage uh, for just enough money that they'll just pay it versus, you know, spending the time to really, you know, try to get it back, so to speak. It's shifting now, right? It's it's becoming much more distributed. And there's so many more data points of access. If you think about it, when you go in to interact with your healthcare from a digital perspective, of course, hospitals, big, large hospital systems have electronic medical records. That's like sort of a bigger target. But you sometimes go to your doctor's office. They may have their own electronic medical mm-hmm. record of you. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're filling stuff through a pharmacy. That's another data point. Your health insurance, that's another data place where you're, you're capturing information. Think of some of the other areas that you can start to get information from. Health fitness apps, health information online, maybe you registered for something. You're putting a digital footprint across multiple different places, and that expands the amount of targets that people have to try to basically hold your healthcare information hostage. Well, it's just the increasing interoperability of all those things. So sign in here with Twitter, connect these to this, especially with all the apps and, you know, uh, consumer focused pieces. I mean, we're tying a lot of this footprint together. They're not these siloed experiences anymore. 
Yeah. Now I'm remembering though a couple episodes ago we were talking about how we want these technologies to be more interoperable. Yet the industry itself is incented not for them to be interoperable. So it's kind of running this like little counterpoint of competing philosophies. Do we want everything to be integrated together or do we want everything to be disconnected? Because there's value on either end. Maybe they're all right. Maybe we want everything sandbox. So when there is a breach, it's contained. Right. So it's not that detrimental to you. But then on the other hand, you know, there might be a lot of value for you tying your health record together. Um, There's an article that we found on innovatemedtech.com called How Much Is Your Health Data Worth? And they say that as digital health evolves, there's going to be more data that can be collected about you and your health. And the collective value of that data together is of increasing interest, not just to medical researchers, but to anyone with an interest in health. Yet, on the flip side, it makes it much more comparable to criminals coming in and stealing your data, ransoming your data. Just the more valuable you make it, I guess, the more likely that happens. So what are we to do? I mean, what is what are health systems to do? I think that as, as we look at our industry, we have to figure out, and you've said this before, Reed, like kind of weighing the good and the bad, right? And when is interoperable data valuable and when does it become too valuable to become more of a security risk? I mean, it's valuable till it's not. <laughs> you know, so, you know, it's a convenience thing mm-hmm. until something happens, then it's like, well, man, I wish that hadn't happened. Right. So from an IT perspective in a hospital and health system, HIPAA, PHI, that's very important, right? Th- these things are, are very critical to keeping, keeping secure. Yet on the flip side, from a patient perspective, from a doctor's perspective, we want to have sort of this open access of data. All of this kind of pulls together. We And even people like health IT companies that are coming into the space, they all want to have this environment where we can collectively share health data so we can glean more relevant information about one another, yet we also at the same time have to walk lock and step with uh, a little bit of security. So maybe what we could do is talk a little bit about some how hospitals have responded recently to some ransomware attacks. Yeah, and maybe even what they should be doing. I, I yeah. still, it's, it's, it's crazy to me when we see this happen, how few, or, you know, I say how few, how, how many times I've heard of that they don't have a backup. You know, the whole system's taken down, but we have nothing. If we wanted to, we couldn't just format the computers, reinstall, and be back up and running. How could that be? I mean, I honestly, I how could that be? I have backups of my computer. I have backups of my phone. And yes, I'm relying on Apple to do all of that. But I just don't understand from a, a multi-billion dollar organization why they wouldn't back up their healthcare information. And I'm, I mean, obviously, I'm sure plenty do. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I've heard of this being the case. So right. they have to pay the ransom. And the problem with that is, is like, will you get your data back? I don't know. So let's talk about a couple ones that have been kind of high profile. Have you heard of the one that happened to Hollywood Presbyterian Medical Center? Mm-hmm. Where they allegedly demanded a ransom of $3.4 million. How the hospital responded is they kind of basically circled back. They just completely took the organization offline. They blocked access to the network, to the email, the crucial patient data for 10 days while they rebuilt the systems from the inside out. Everybody back to paper charts. There you go. Pass out clipboards. I'm telling you, from a guy that works in, again, I'm not in patient care, but from a guy in marketing, if they're like, hey, uh, we got to take down email for like 10 days. Like, sweet. 
That would be amazing. I'll just be out wandering around <laughs> because I now have nothing to do. I can imagine like the IT departments frantically trying to figure this all out, you know, trying to mm-hmm. go on the back end systems. This sounds very, uh, very much like a headache. I'm sure they brought in some people to help them restore the systems too, you know, and they learned probably a lot through that process. Uh, hang on, hang on one second. I can't talk during his backswing. Just one second. <laughs> Uh, you know, another one, I guess this is coming on a couple of years ago now, but Ottawa Hospital was hit by ransomware, got almost 10,000 machines. They just simply wiped all the drives. Mm-hmm. There you um, go. So they probably had backups. Yeah, obviously they just reformat everything, reinstall and, and keep going. Is that good? Is that a good response? Well, I guess if you do have a backup and it's, you're only talking about, you know, only 10,000 machines. I'm sure that was an impact to, the, to their productivity, but I bet you they've evaluated the risk versus the, the, the cost you know, implications, and they decided that that was probably their best option to move forward. If they had no data breach or no substantial change of data information, that might be a good choice. They got many computers they had to go to because people were having issues with their email after that. My email signature is missing. <laughs> Around that same time, Kentucky Methodist Hospital, uh, Chino Valley Medical Center, Desert Valley Hospital, all in California, were hit by ransomware. It says here that Kentucky Methodist Hospital Information Systems Director Jamie Reed named the malware involved as Locky. <laughs> okay. Locky. That sounds like such a fun name, right? Yeah, I guess. Um, it noted that none of the hospitals impacted were believed to have paid the ransom. But what they ended up doing, though, is that they restored the systems. They gave that information to a, a technology, a cybersecurity company that ended up turning, you know, proactively creating sort of an anti-ransomware, anti-malware, whatever it's called, software that they were able to then go out and protect many multiple machines. So I guess there's an upside to having, you know, everybody, yep. you know, going more digital is that if it happens in one place, they can quickly fix it and re and restore. I've heard of other hospitals that have paid the ransom. Now, these were smaller hospitals. Mm-hmm. Did pay the ransom, did get their information back. Uh, one of I know specifically, and I think I gave this example before, probably on the cybersecurity episode, but that she paid it in bitcoins. There you go, bitcoins. Mm-hmm. So here you find yourself as the CEO of a hospital in the back room of a vape shop buying bitcoins. Like, <laughs> can you imagine? Like, I'm sure that dude was like, so never thought I'd be doing this. Like they don't teach you this when you get your master's of health administration. What's the Bitcoin exchange rate? Is that part of a class? I don't know. It makes you wonder, right? Where the, where that whole second economy is coming from. And that's a great place. Bitcoin is a great place for, for these cyber criminals to start to traffic and exchange this, this information. So what's next? Well, we're hardly cybersecurity experts. And neither one of us stayed at a Holiday Inn Express. <laughs> exactly. So we're just winging it here at this point. But what's going on is that ransomware is becoming even much more sophisticated. We talked about now it's becoming more distributed. It's people are able to buy the ransomware packages and then turn around and attack on, you know, organizations for this. Threats such as ransomware as a service, which 
you know, sounds really weird, but basically a cloud-based ransomware type solution. And even mobile ransomware are predicted to really start to impact people, you know, using mobile as a way to get into it. And that makes sense because many organizations are starting to adopt bring your own device type of approaches, Mm. right? So Mm -hmm. now what you're doing is you're exposing yourself to multiple different platforms. But there's other ways too with this internet of things, Reed. The smart TVs, fitness trackers, anything, any other kind of wearable device that's in the the space, it's painting a very robust picture of how to start to counter ransomware type of attacks. I mean, I just saw in my head like us being in an argument with Alexa. (laughs) Don't do it. So voice first, like she's just going to like flip and take over. Could you imagine once that happens, we don't have a lot of organizations right now transferring patient health information or PHI over these voice first technologies, but that's only a matter of time. Mm -hmm. You know, these IOT devices are providing a new whole new frontier for ransomware operators. They're whole new operating systems and their whole new environments and different ways. You're, you're basically, you're opening up the number of ports that are available for people to hack into. Well, we talked about back in 30, episode 39, we talked about you know, doing things like being very careful about phishing when it sounds suspicious. Don't open up attachments on emails. Don't ever give away your personal information. So I think that's very good practice for people to do. You even said, Reed, backing up software is is something that's really important or backing up the health record. Many organizations mm-hmm. are starting to do that. I think that's important on a regular basis. Yeah, I mean, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. But having things backed up will, I guess, give you at least a little bit of a fallback. But still, just don't click on stuff in emails. Just don't do it. Just don't do this, it. That's what's so funny to me is we talk about the issue with social media access still. Yet, the number one cause of all IT-related concerns are you know via email. Like That's the number one entry point, right? Mm-hmm. We still give people email addresses without a second thought when we hire them. When we set them up in the system and they get their little number, you know, in the system or whatever, you know, how do we keep track of all that stuff? It comes with a corresponding email address. It just auto generates. We just give people emails. And that's like the biggest security threat in any health system is that email and and particularly poor email behavior, poor email, you know tracking behavior and most emails now are being opened up on on mobile devices and the last thing in the world we want to do is we want to have you know it at a hospital system come in and lock down your your personal cell phone again it's that like what's the value when does value outweigh privacy risks well it's funny because you know i hear from folks sometimes especially around internal communications that you know the nurses don't check their email we have to reset their password like once a year because they haven't logged in mm-hmm. which my response is always like good there's no upside for them checking their email none like have better staff meetings and better ways to communicate internally they don't need an email address that's so true reed but you know again i don't i don't see how in an organization how you cannot have email addresses for your employees to share critical information, to give them access. You got to get some kind of personal identification that allows people access to your systems when they need access to it. I think this is a this is a touch point, touch counterpoint <laughs> argument starting. <laughs> I think so too. And maybe we should pa- hit pause and pick it up in, in just a few minutes here. The big conflict here, though, is like it's that conflict again with 
how far do we want to go around sharing health data and, and linking together health data to get meaningful information, and how much of that becomes risky? And maybe what we can do is we can end with a quote from Dr. Beth Seidenberg, where she says, if we truly want to enable the breakthroughs and behavior changes that will transform our health and our industry, we must be willing to share our most personal asset, the data about our lifestyle, our state of health, and disease. And maybe we could put a little appendix at the end of that read, which says, and with that comes our date of birth, our financial information, and our social security (laughs) number. Just make it part of your email signature. Hey, Chris, before we go too much further, jump into this next segment of the podcast, I did want to uh, mention and thank uh, one of our sponsors, Influence Health. Uh, You know, they've got a consumer experience platform that that covers several things. And correct me if I'm wrong, but we've, we've talked about content management systems on this podcast. Yeah, we did. What about CRMs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we covered CRMs for sure. And then obviously each and every week we talk about digital marketing. So digital marketing systems, uh, you know, in one way, shape or form have probably been covered, right? That's right. Yeah. Digital marketing systems. And I would say that we even talk about it in a way of uh, that overall digital consumer experience. Well, there you go. I, you know, I would, I would recommend for anybody interested in one of those topics uh, or anything else, they've also got some complimentary solutions on their website. But, but head over to their website, take a look at what they've got and what they're offering relative to CMS, CRM, digital marketing systems, kind of how all that is woven together in what they call their consumer experience platform. Find your way over to InfluenceHealth.com. Touchpoint. Touch counterpoint. There are two sides to every story. Ready? Fight! Okay, Reed, we're in the touch point, touch counterpoint section, uh, which won the award last year for the most misnamed or mispronounced title of our segments. Yeah, we don't even remember what award it won. <laughs> like, that's how confusing it is. <laughs> Anyway, as we were talking about ransomware, we stumbled upon a topic that I think that you and I can very easily argue. And I think we started to and we decided to push pause until now, which is in this world of digital, where digital is very important for everybody that works at a hospital and a health system. Do you think that we should give email addresses to all of our employees? No, there's no reason. Absolutely zero reason. Many people do need it. Absolutely. I would say the vast majority of your clinical staff do not need an email address based on the fact that they never check them. I would agree with the fact that they may not need a specific email address to check daily emails and to use it as a communication tool. But I would argue that you need to have an authenticated email assigned to every employee so you can have access to your HR systems, to your lens systems, to your intranet, so you can get access to all of this. The last thing we want to do is give them another username, password, that they're not going to remember. Why not give it to them via an email address and they can authenticate via the email address and be into these systems without having to remember that 15-letter password? I mean, I think we got to be smarter than that. I mean, they already have some sort of employee ID. It's not an email address, but there is something assigned to every person that works there 
a unique identifier of some sort. Why can't that just be the username? What if their unique identifier is the email address? I mean, you're right. We do all have employee numbers, but I've worked at health systems for numbers of years. I can never recall what my employee number is, but I do remember my email addresses at all the hospitals I worked for. I can tell you my employee ID number from the hospital I worked in, uh, which would have been, I left in 2007. Okay. What is it? So 10, 10 years ago. I can't tell you because it's still active. <laughs> Wait, your employee ID is still active? No, no, no. It's, it's, not, it's not active in the sense that like I could log into something, but it's active in the sense that they cannot assign that to anybody else ever. So like if I went back to work there, I would get the same one back. I would argue that if you announced your employee number on this podcast right now, no one would be able to hack any information about your system. That's because it's not meaningful. However, if you had a, an employee email address with a password and you have that authenticated through a single sign-on or whatever, however it's authenticated through the, the protected systems, which we are very good at from an IT department to protect our email addresses and to reset them and have good email reset proxies and, and methodologies around that, that that's a really great record to use to access all the health systems. And therefore, every employee in the health system should have an email address from the environmental services all the way up through the CEO. I think you only have an email address if you need to communicate via email. And most of them don't. You can remember your employee ID number if you need to. It's just you haven't needed to. Yeah, but what if you're like halfway into your employment and you get a promotion that now instead of just being a nurse, you're becoming a nurse manager that has to access certain systems to do employee reviews and you have to start getting email information. Then what are you going to do? You're going to have to wait for IT to spend, you know, 60 days to get your email address set up? Come on. No, it will it happen. And if you move into a management role, then sure, you get an email address because then you need to communicate via email. But if you're in patient care settings, if you're a nurse, why do you need an email address? To access the systems. Nah, you don't need it. Because where I was, they used their employee ID number. So they had to remember both. There's, there's no point in having the email address. Well, that was also, you know, 11 years ago, Reed. That was back in the dark ages of the digital world. <laughs> Maybe yeah. we can agree to disagree here on this one and say that there is a need for employees to have access to digital tools online. Uh, my argument is, is still standing by the fact that the email address is probably the best way to get to that, to give that information out. But I, I see your point. They don't need to use the email address to communicate via email. And we certainly don't want to start emailing them information that they're not going to check on a regular basis. Yeah, and just take up server space. Which is, you know, infinitesimally small now anyway so <laughs> oh that's the first one we never really got to the middle on Mm-mm. all right here we are at ask the expert the uh, ever popular segment of the podcast where we actually talk to somebody that practically does the stuff that chris and i have just recently talked about today very fortunate to have a good friend of mine john mason join me uh john's background as a, as a cio so spent a lot of time in the hca system and elsewhere working with large corporate organizations small rural hospitals and, and the like and 
uh, several years ago, went out on his own and is uh, now consulting organizations of all size relative to uh, all things that pertain to that portion. I guess the IT and S portion of the organization, is that fair to say? Yeah, healthcare IT. Hey, Reed, good to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for joining us, man. I've referenced, I guess, a number of stories you've told me in previous podcast episodes. Okay. <laughs> so it's always good information. So it's great to have the source here. Recently, for those that have listened to the podcast, know uh, we have talked about cybersecurity in the past. Going a little bit deeper, talking more specifically about, I guess, ransomware. Sure. Through your eyes, how are hospitals defining what ransomware is or include? Ransomware, it's, as you said, really big in the news right now, right? And it's a phrase that you hear thrown around a lot. And frankly, sometimes what when I hear something and I hear them talk about ransomware, they're not really talking about ransomware. They're just talking about a hack or a breach or maybe even a virus. Ransomware is a very specific thing. Ransomware is when somebody that you don't want to, a bad actor, I guess, for lack of a better term, accesses your system and then encrypts it. Uh, basically locks it down and demands that you mm. pay them some money to unlock it. And and until you do that, they they have control of the system and, and you can't use your applications and your, your electronic health record. You're stuck with paper at that yeah, point. Right. Well and, and until and, until you write a check or pay right. money. And yeah, if if it were that easy to write a check, I'll talk about that later. But yeah, you're you're stuck with paper and, and frankly, most organizations are so far into electronic health records at this point, there's not a lot of paper to go back to. In a lot of cases, in, in organizations that aren't prepared, you're kind of creating all over again on paper. You know, it's funny. I hadn't really thought about it that way in the sense of it's hard to go backwards. You know, if you think about what's happened over the past eight to 10 years as there's been a bigger push to move to an electronic health record, and by the way, for all the right reasons, there's all kinds of reasons. We could have sure. a whole conversation just around why it's important to do it. But as you did that, mm -hmm. the only way you could make that jump uh, was you physically had to almost, in some cases, pull the paper out of people's hands and get rid of it. Then, then you've got the point at which when you lose access to that system, the paper's not there anymore. Ransomware, yeah, they're locking the place down. And uh, this actually happened at my church, strangely enough, as well, that has kind of a weekday education, like a school, you know, as part of the church. This isn't exclusive to healthcare necessarily, but... You know, relative to healthcare, what does marketing need to know that the ITNS department is doing to prepare for this or should be doing, I guess? Maybe not everybody is, but what happens to prepare for this event? When I deal with marketing and communications folks specifically is you have to make the assumption that it's going to happen someday. And so you need to take mm. the time while it's not happening to think about how you're going to react as an organization. The last thing you want is to make the IT director of your hospital or the CIO even as your main face of communication out to the community and to your patients about the incident. So you need to be thinking about it ahead of time, just like you would a natural disaster or uh, you know some other incident within the organization that has, mm -hmm. that has mm -hmm. a potential impact. So so first and foremost, I would say is you have to assume that it could happen. And just like you would do in any other case, you're going to make a plan 
for who's going to say what and when before the incident actually happens. Because the last thing you want to be doing is sitting in the back of an office somewhere trying to craft out on a piece of paper what in the world do we say and who do we ask and who do we talk to. Along those lines, all hospitals do some sort of annual uh, disaster drill or training. Do you know of anybody or has anybody done it related to this? Has anybody made the disaster electronic in nature? I think some of the larger organizations are doing that or they're at least including it in the thought process. You know, the the issue there is you don't necessarily have some large scale hits everybody type of incident around ransomware. I think that would be hard to um, to really engage everyone like you might do with a natural disaster, right? Where you've got clinical departments and nurses and physicians and everybody, you know, manning stations and things like that. But large organizations are definitely starting to take that into account. With organizations I've worked in, you know, one of the things that that we often would do is you would have just downtime procedures. Does your hospital, does your organization have procedures for what happens when the the systems do go away? And there should be some written procedures and things like that in place that people fall back to. And like in a lot of cases, um, when, when you bring a system down to patch it once a month or do your maintenance, that's a time to practice those downtime procedures. So in some ways, you are practicing. However, I've been around organizations that don't have downtime procedures. And then things go down and they just kind of scramble and figure it out as it goes. Which is not a great place to be, I guess. You know, one of the things that an organization should be doing, um, this kind of branches outside of marketing communications, but the IT systems, the electronic health records should have some form of a backup of basic patient information, especially those patients that are in your hospital at that moment. And that should be produced on some regular basis. Because imagine if you suddenly lost your electronic health record because of ransomware, no one could access it. You've got to know what medications those patients are on, what their diagnosis were, what was the next thing that was getting ready to happen. And so in a lot of cases, we build in ways to um, either manually print those to a specific location every six hours, you know, that type of thing. So you've got some backup. Ransomware in general, I mean, I think, at least in my mind, I think I know what it is, but has it, has it, like, when did it come about initially, especially in hospitals and has it kind of evolved over time or is it still, it's the same thing? You know, it, it really has. Um, you know, I would say, 15 years ago, this wasn't a topic that I had ever thought about. You know, what you thought about then was viruses, right? And this idea that something, a virus, um, we, uh, we now use the term malware, which just means malicious software. You know, malware is, is just short for that. It was more about viruses that might go in and uh, slow down your system, things like that. But, but this idea of, of truly being, I, I guess the term malicious just encrypting to make money wasn't a thought. Now, it's been around for a while. Don't get me wrong. It's been around since probably the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, some of the first indications of it happened, but more prominent in healthcare probably in the last three to five years. You see it more in the news and you see it growing. There's been some pretty big incidents of it in the past couple of years. Some of these you've seen in the news. Is there a type of organization, part of a system, sole community provider, rural hospital? I mean, is anybody more likely to get hit than anybody else? Probably a few years ago would have said, oh, it's only going to be a large organization, you know, because they're obviously after data, right? Well, they're, they're wanting to get paid, but the other side of that is 
if they if they've gotten in there and encrypted you, they could also pull the data out. Um, and the the pr- uh, protected health information (PHI) is worth more on the market than say just a credit card. But today, I've okay. kind of changed my tune, and I think rural and smaller provider hospitals, critical access hospitals, they're the ones that are a pretty good target because typically their infrastructure and their levels of sophistication of technology and even the folks that support it aren't as high sometimes. Not saying that they're not good folks, but they Mm -hmm. may not have the access to the latest software or the latest information. And so they become a pretty good target. And, you know, these guys aren't after big money. What they're looking for is volume. How many different people can they can they hit up? Most of the time when they're asking for ransom, it, it's not tremendous amounts of money. I guess it's um, a quick turn, right? So it's like, you know, I, I'd rather sell 10 widgets for $20 a piece versus trying to sell the $100 widget. The average ransomware that goes, now this is, I'm ta- not talking a hospital, but just for the average person at home who might get encrypted at home, for example, the average, they're asking for less than 500 bucks. And most people will pay that because like, well, I got to either go buy a new computer at 2000 bucks or I'll just pay 500 and hope that I get my data back. I don't know if you remember the big incident out in Hollywood, Los Angeles. It was it was a Los Angeles hospital a couple of years ago. And the rumor on the news was that the ransom request was three point four million dollars and that it was like a month that they hadn't paid it. It turned out it, the ransom request was only about $17,000. And interestingly enough, I've worked with another organization or I'm aware of another organization that paid that same amount for theirs. And in this case, the Los Angeles hospital paid it. Um, and luckily, they they were unencrypted. So not everybody gets it back, huh? These guys aren't like smart businessmen, right? And women, they're, they're not sitting around going, well, we don't want to hurt our customer if they paid us. I, they don't have very good scruples. So... Um, the, the odds of it happening are pretty slim. I, I would guess the larger the target, the more likely you will get it back because then the full brunt of the U.S. government is after you if you don't. But I would say a lot of smaller places, they don't ever get it back. That comes back to this whole idea of you got to be prepared for it before it happens. You, you know, One other thing I was just thinking back to your question about marketing and communications you know, this isn't just a function of thinking about it's going to happen. They really should lay, sit down and lay out a plan for what you communicate, when, how often, to whom, because there not only is there the whole issue of ransomware, but there's also, in the case of a hospital, you've got this notion that now it's a breach, right? And so you've got governmental requirements for reporting and to whom you report. Mm-hmm. So, so really, you know, that marketing, that CMO or that marketing director needs to be lockstep with the CIO. They need to sit down and talk about what can the CIO tell me when, how do you put it in plain language and plain English so I can tell the public you know we've we've talked about how marketing specifically communications can be involved you know once this has happened is there a role they can play in making sure it doesn't happen to begin with you know a couple things i i really lean on folks like that to help with education because the bottom line is you can put all the expensive technologies in the world in place the breaking point on this is the human and 90% of the time it's going to come through email and so the only real protection is constant education and vigilance and using that marketing communications group 
to help you with constant awareness. It, you know, I always think back to the old the old World War II posters, you know, loose lips, sink ships and buy war bonds and, you know, help the guys overseas and all. That was an ingenious way to keep the public involved in the effort and keep them aware. And you really have to be doing the same thing today in a hospital. It can't be one every year you take a training on cybersecurity and now we're good. It has to be constantly pushed out in front of people about their responsibility to not do those things that are going to make them become vulnerable. If you're not running some kind of a regular phishing attempt against your organization. It's funny, I've, I've been doing these for quite a few years and been around them, and I've, I've had more than one occasion where somebody, and usually somebody senior, walks up to me and said, that wasn't fair, you tricked us. And my answer usually back is, yeah, and I'm sure the bad guys aren't going to be as rough as we were. You know, the fact is you've got to constantly trying to help people understand that when they click on things, when they open things, that has the potential to hurt not just them, but the whole organization. And frankly, in healthcare, patients. It goes beyond that too, right? It's gotta be that public service announcement type thing, you know, the awareness. And that's really where I think marketing communications, a lot of times I think they are a little reluctant because they feel like their job is only external, but frankly, they need to be internal too. Um, They need to be the folks who are driving the culture and the awareness uh, in a lot of areas, and this is one of them. Third, I would say it really falls on, this is an executive leadership issue. If the senior executives think that this is just something you can push off to the IT department and the marketing department and they don't need to worry about it, they're sadly mistaken because ultimately they're the ones who drive the culture and either make it important or not. And so it really takes them owning it and saying that they're serious about it. And that means putting money where it's needed. That means being visible about it when it's needed too. Everybody owns technology now. When I first got into this business, technology was relegated to the back office. It was a a thing that kind of helped out a little bit. Technology is your business now. It is core. And you think about any hospital system, whatever it may be, Everything you do from patient care to billing to payroll to HR all falls around technology. And so everybody has to be technology savvy. They, th- this idea of, oh, I don't do computers or I don't understand technology really doesn't fly anymore. That would be like somebody back 60s saying, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to write. I don't use paper. It just doesn't work that way. And so, yeah, marketing and communications, those folks are critical to how well the organization runs and especially how well it protects itself. If you're a hospital executive, one of the questions you need to be asking yourself is, is IT prepared for this? Are my employees trained? But are, are there some fundamental things in place like backups that need to be there? You know, ultimately, the people who fall for ransomware and end up having their systems taken away from them, most of the time it's because they didn't have a good backup and recovery process. The reason that happens, and I know this this is kind of, I would call this maybe a dirty little secret of IT, is a lot of money gets spent on backup and recovery, dollar-wise, to put the technologies in place. But the problem is we never put people to it. And so it kind of becomes this byproduct. You know, like you and I buy... Backblaze or whatever we might buy to back up our own computers. And we kind of assume it works. You know, you don't know that. You don't know there wasn't a glitch one day. And frankly, probably 
backups are only good about 60% of the time. The question is, what's the other 40% and who's monitoring it? So I've become a much bigger advocate now, especially with all this, to telling executives, if you don't have good confidence in your backup and recovery process, you need to find a good company. If people want to track you down online uh, and connect with you, what's what's the best way to do that? Yeah, a couple ways. Um, you can go to my website. Uh, my company is called Oakhorn Solutions. So you can go to oakhornsolutions.com or you can email me, john, at oakhornsolutions.com. Also connect with me on LinkedIn, John T. Mason, and, and um, love to connect on LinkedIn as well. So be happy to Very help. Cool. I, I work with a lot of organizations and help them through this and many other things. But this is one that's a little bit of a passion of mine. Uh, We will certainly uh, link to all that stuff in the show notes. And again, appreciate you joining us. All right, Reed. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Chris, good news. The healthcare industry now has its own domain name. What? Absolutely. Everybody knows that organizations have .org, education has .edu. Well, now .health is available and quickly becoming the home for all health-related content online. And listeners to our podcast can visit git.health slash touchpoint. Visit git.health slash touchpoint now. All right, here we are at the end of episode 48, or season two, episode one. (laughs) However you want to view that first episode of 2018. Uh, so a good one on ransomware. Thanks again to John Mason. We'll have links in the show notes, obviously, how to track him down, mm-hmm. find us online, and all that kind of good stuff. Just as a little bit of a teaser, we're going to have uh, some new stuff coming out here in the next couple of months uh, that I think you guys might be interested in listening to, but more to come on that. Mm-hmm. Go out, subscribe, rate, review us, all that kind of fun stuff, and it is now time for recommendations. All right. What do you got? All right. I got a good recommendation, Reed. You know, over the holiday season, that's when I guess Netflix releases a lot of its newer shows. It's been almost a new release every week. And I'm going to recommend a Mm. Netflix show that's an old favorite of mine that I have seen before. It's actually they released season four, which is of the show Black Mirror. Have you ever seen the show? No. Black Mirror is sort of a science fiction-y future state twilight zone kind of show it was originally produced in the uk but i think netflix picked up the production of it and it seems to be now sort of you know actors from all over the all over the world they just released season four on netflix i guess it does run on the bbc and you can get the full extended episodes on the bbc if you live in the uk it's definitely a really cool show it has a each episode is a different different story different take on a different story in season four for example the first episode is about a cto of a online gaming company that is really mm-hmm. into a star trek like uh show and so he creates a online world that's like star trek and he controls it himself and he uses dna to replicate people in his office uh, to be on his crew so he can boss them around and it's it's really warped and <laughs> twisted and kind of fun it's definitely adult level material so it's not for kids and if you're watching it anew and you start on Netflix, uh, the first episode of season one is a really hard one to get through. I almost didn't get through it because the content matter is so, it, it just challenges you in so many ways. I would encourage you if you're a little squeamish and you just want to try out the show, try out episode two of season one 
and then eventually come back and hit episode one. It's called The Black Mirror. Highly recommended. It's a fun show to just kind of pick up and watch whenever you can. My recommendation uh, actually fits today nicely. And so this is a book that I listened to on some trip. I I don't remember uh, last year in 2017. It's really interesting. So it's a true book. Uh, It's called American Kingpin, The Epic Hunt for the Criminal Mastermind Behind the Silk Road. Well, I'll just read the little descriptor here. In 2011, a 26-year-old libertarian programmer named Ross Albright, which is he actually is from Austin. He went to high school with my brother-in-law. He launched the ultimate free market, the Silk Road, a clandestine website hosted on the dark web where anyone could trade anything. So he built this website on the dark web, which if you don't know what the dark web is, um, well... Be careful. Um, but anyway, he, he built this website called the Silk Road where it was basically, think of like Craigslist or eBay or something like that on the dark web. So you could buy drugs, you could buy hacking software, forged passports, counterfeit cash. You could hire a hitman, you know, buy weapons, grenades. I mean, just all that kind of stuff, wow. right? And everything was paid for in Bitcoin. And he was caught, his handle was the Dread Pirate Roberts from The Princess Bride. Anybody? He was caught in a library out in San Francisco. Anyway, it's, it's a fascinating book to listen to it stole, uh, told through the eyes of like the FBI and some of these different people that were tracking him for so long mm-hmm. and to figure out even who he was because nobody knew who he was. It, they just knew the handle, the Dread Pirate Roberts, was the person that owned this site and tracking him down. It, it, it's, it is insane. Absolute insanity. And so a really good, uh, really good book, really make you question what happens on the internet. Check that out. Excellent. Let's remind our listeners that episode 50 is coming up. So reach out to us, share with us some of your best tips. Sure. Good digital tip or something that you might want to hear. It also, your tip, who knows, might turn into a full blown episode in the future where you would be the expert, right? That's right. Well, very good. We'll, we'll hit us up with those. Uh, I keep thinking episode 50 is like. What is that, like summertime or something like that? But that's like two weeks from <laughs> two now. Two weeks from now. So, and Thanks for all your support. 2017 was was great. We're coming up on our, our one-year anniversary uh, around the 1st of February. So we can't, can't thank you enough for uh, the support and willingness to hang in there and listen with us each week. So until next time, he's Chris Boyer, and I'm Reed Smith. 